Our scripture passage today is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 17 to 30. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do not have words to fully capture the meaning, the depth, uh, the significance of what is in this passage. And so I pray that you would give us in the inside of our being uh, a language that we would hear by your spirit as English words attempt to do justice to what angels look at and marvel. And we pray that somehow you would allow the frailty of a human tongue and the construction of English language to communicate something so beautiful, something so dear in the reality of the suffering of your Son. And I pray that as we receive the Lord's table today, that it would just be a renewed Um, event for all of us, a grace-giving event as we understand the full ramifications of what it means for the Son um, to be the bread of affliction and to be poured out in the atonement that we call the cross. And so I pray that you would help us to hear and to listen and to respond to your word today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you what your favorite national holiday is, what would you respond? Some of you, maybe 4th of July, maybe Memorial Day, perhaps Super Bowl Sunday, um, snow days, things of that sort. Or how about this? Maybe your favorite um, church holiday. Maybe it's Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, perhaps Easter. Well, if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, without question, the favorite festival, the favorite national holiday would have been Passover. It was the first of three festivals that Deuteronomy chapter 16 required for people to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Passover at the first of the year, Pentecost 50 days later, and then at the harvest, the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. 
And while each is significant, Passover, hands down, is the most significant of all of these events. And we're going to learn why today. In our text, Matthew 26, we see that Jesus is participating and celebrating this national holiday, this Passover, or also called unleavened, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what you're going to see in the text is both the end of Passover and the beginning of the Lord's table. Such that Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 that Jesus has become our Passover lamb. Our text today is important because it bridges both the history of the Passover and the New Testament relevant event called the Lord's Table. And we're in the middle of this series on the subject of the passion of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see today is the way in which both Passover and the Lord's Table are dynamic symbols. They're, they're dynamic spiritual symbols that capture both the beauty and the trauma of redemption. And, and what I hope today is you'll see the roots of the Lord's Table and the Passover and you'll be gloriously in love with the reality of the Lord's table and what it tells you about Jesus Christ. So the dynamic symbols that capture both the beauty and the trauma of redemption. First, I want you to see that this Passover is a spiritual memorial. In order to understand what Jesus is doing in this particular moment with the Lord's table, you have to understand the roots of the Passover. In verse 17, we learn that on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So there were actually two festivals. There was the Passover and the unleavened bread, and these merged really into one national celebration. The Passover being the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in Jesus' day, the city of Jerusalem would have found itself full of about 200,000 pilgrims who were coming from all over the Near East. To set the stage for you, this is Thursday, the Thursday before the Friday of His crucifixion. Passover, this festival, has roots that run 3,000 years deep. It was practiced by Jews for generations. And this particular event celebrates the most defining moment in the nation of Israel's history. And that, of course, is the Exodus. When God's people were in slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God pulled them out with a mighty hand. And this Exodus event, where God redeemed them out, while He pulled them out using ten plagues, becomes the defining mark of the Jewish people, becomes really their identity, and for that matter, becomes the basis of God's relationship even with His people. Think, for instance, what God says when they come to Mount Sinai and they receive the Ten Commandments. God says this to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. So the basis upon which God can say, you shall have no other gods before me, is because these are his people because he went and got them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So this Exodus event becomes the basis of their relationship with God and it becomes the basis of their relationship with one another. Often the law will tell people that you're to treat others in a particular way because remember that you were slaves in Egypt and God brought you out with a mighty hand. So in many respects, the Jewish people were Exodus people. It was the defining moment, this Exodus event. And if you were to take the Exodus event and boil it down into one particular moment, you would boil that down to the celebration of Passover. 
Because Passover was the inaugural event to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which pictured this whole beautiful redemptive moment when God took his people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by virtue of these nine plagues. And then the final one was the killing of the firstborn child. For those of you unfamiliar with the story, it was this final plague that God warned Pharaoh and said, if you won't let my people go, then every single person in your land will experience death. The firstborn child of every family will be killed. And that is, in fact, what happened. And to set the stage for the significance of the celebration, we need to understand how the nation of Israel celebrated that very first Passover. So take your Bibles, and let's go over to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 2. Now this is a fairly long passage. We're going to read verses 2 through 27. But I want you just to see the underpinnings of the um, Lord's table in the way in which this Passover moment comes on the scene with the nation of Israel. Look at verse 2. It says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So this is the way they started their year with this celebration. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, its head, with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now, just pause for a minute. How many of you are the firstborn in your family? Will you raise your hands? You're dead. Okay, so that's that, that's you. That's me. We're, it, that's so you get the sense of how widespread. I mean, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Verse 13, this, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial for you, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. 
For anyone who eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You see, leaven pictured impurity. And so they're to cleanse their houses from this, from this leaven, and then they're to make this unleavened bread. Verse 16, On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread on this very day. I brought your hosts out, or for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Yeah, I bet they did. Unbelievable, isn't it? To, to think of what that moment must have been like. Imagine with me what it must have been like to be awake that night and to know that while you're eating this meal, the angel of death is passing over the entire land of Egypt. Think with me what it would be like to hear the national grief as Parents and families begin to wake up in the middle of the night to the the blood-curdling, death-discovering screams that there are people in every house that have a dead person in them, and in some cases, two dead people. And in some cases, a dead dog. They didn't know their dog was the firstborn, and there it is, dead. They didn't know their their, their calf was the firstborn, and there it is. It's man and beast. There's death all over the place. Imagine what it must have been like to know that while death has come to the entire nation, it has passed over your house. Every person was touched in some way. Everyone was affected. Some were delivered, but many, many were killed. And this Passover event becomes the bloody redemption of God's people from slavery. Now, During Jesus' day, Passover still had great significance. Hundreds of thousands of people would have traveled to the city of Jerusalem and imagine what it would have been like. You got shopkeepers who are setting up their shops, you got beggars who are positioning themselves, you got money changers who are 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 selling their wares to the travelers, families who are 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 looking for the perfect lamb for their sacrifice. And then what would happen at three o'clock, you would gather as the head of the family in the temple of the city of Jerusalem, and as the trumpet sounded, you would slit the neck of your lamb or your goat, 
and then you would drain its blood into the basin. You would take that blood and you would throw it at the base of the altar. You would then skin the lamb, uh, take its kidneys and its entrails and put it on top of the burnt offering as an offering to the Lord. And then you would take your lamb back with you and roast it. And that became your meal. And this is what the disciples are doing in their preparation. That's why they say, where will you have us prepare to eat the the, the Passover? And, And verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And so what we have here is this beautiful, bloody deliverance of God's people through the Exodus... And it is captured in this signature moment called Passover. This this moment in Israel's history that has roots all the way back to their very beginning where they became known as Exodus people. And Jesus in this moment will fulfill the symbolism in the Lord's table. But what I want you to see is that this spiritual memorial has roots all the way back to the very essence of what it meant for them to be Jewish. When they came out of the house of slavery. Now there's more here. Not only is there a spiritual memorial, but there also is an element of personal examination. Look at verse 20. It says, And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. So to kind of set the scene for you here, um, they would have eaten the Passover meal in a U-shaped table. They would have reclined at couches that could... um, seat or lay, if you will, three people on them, which is why the scriptures say that John could lean his head back on Jesus' chest, and they would lay and prop themselves up with their left elbow and then eat with their right. And as they're reclining at table, Jesus radically changes the environment of the event. Verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, Jesus had previously talked about the fact that he was going to be delivered up, but this is new and, frankly, it's disturbing information that there would be a betrayal and it would be one of them in the midst. And in fact, while they're enjoying this meal, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One of them, one of the disciples. And the effect is that they become sorrowful. Verse 22 indicates that they began to say one after another, kind of in rapid-fire succession, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Is it I? And finally, this this sense in this meal is that kind of chaos suddenly broke out as they start saying, is it me? What about me? Think of what's going on at this moment. Jesus, by virtue of this statement, has shocked them. And what are they doing? They're, They're evaluating both if it's them and if they could do it. Jesus now has made this memorial meal not just a reflection on the past. Suddenly, with this question, he's made it a moment of personal examination, which is why it makes sense to hear the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself, or a person examine himself, and then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So remembrance was not only part of this new Lord's table or this communion. Now there's also an element of examination. And then verses 23 to 24, they're just so loaded with with meaning. He answered... 
This is their question. Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. This was a like a sauce that you would dip bread in. And what Jesus is really saying there is, it's one of you. Because they've already all dipped. So, so that didn't help them. And then Jesus refers to the sovereign plan of, of God. He says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Meaning that there is a sovereign plan of God that's unfolding here. That, that this is a part of God's plan for redemption. And, and then it goes on, it says, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In other words, Judas is equally as responsible as God is sovereign. And, and here we see the tension that always exists in the scripture between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And those things just exist, they just are. And then it ends with a private sidebar between Judas and Jesus. In verse 25, notice Judas's duplicity. He says, is it I, Rabbi? It may be that he intentionally doesn't use the word Lord here. Is it I, Rabbi? Judas probably thinks that Jesus doesn't know. And Jesus says to him, you have said so. In our modern vernacular, it would be, well, you said it. Kind of a inferential way to indicate that the jig is up and I know what's going on here. So, so here's a... Here's a remarkable, defining moment. Just, just think of this. In the midst of the most important celebration of the Jewish calendar year is this meal. This meal that pictures both the beauty of redemption and also pictures the essence of what it meant for them to be Jewish. In the midst of this meal, Jesus reveals that one of them will betray them, betray him, And in the midst of this memorial is this personal examination. And then out of this examination comes this new memorial and this new redemption that then fulfills the new covenant. So, folks, this is, this is sacred ground here. So it's a spiritual memorial. It's also a time of personal reflection. Third, notice that it is also a dynamic symbol. A dynamic symbol. The Passover involved many different elements. And Jesus, though, takes two. And what he does is he takes the bread, unleavened bread, and then he also takes the cup. And in both cases, these were elements that were an important part of the Passover meal. But Jesus then takes these and he gives them incredible, loaded, new meaning. In fact... Let's focus first on the bread. In Deuteronomy 16, this is what it says. It says, You shall eat no no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread. The bread of affliction. That's what this bread is. Unleavened bread will not only symbolize the purity that God wanted, but more importantly, it was called the bread of affliction. It was meant to remind them that this was the kind of bread that you ate when you were slaves. When you were waiting for me, when you were hunkered down in your houses, when you knew that the angel of death was hiding and hovering over top of the various cities of Egypt, this was the bread that you ate. This is the bread of affliction. This is to remind you that you were slaves. And then the text tells us that Jesus takes the unleavened bread, 
He blesses it. And then he breaks it. And then he takes it and he gives it to them individually. He gives them individual pieces. And what does he say to them? He says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. So what is Jesus saying there? When he takes the bread of affliction and he says, this is my body. And then he says, you take it and you eat it. What is he saying? He's saying that the new bread of affliction is Jesus's body. And what kind of affliction does he have? Well, it's not the affliction of slavery. No, it is the affliction of the wrath of a holy God. And when Jesus says, take this and eat, he's saying something even more, that we are to take this, this bread of affliction, this absorbing of Christ's wrath, and that we receive it. We receive his affliction. We receive his, his punishment. He, we receive all of the wrath that he endured, and we receive it individually, and we receive it personally. He invites them to take part in his suffering, not by their suffering, but by their receiving of his suffering. He's afflicted and says, you take, eat. So in the back of your mind, you you have to hear Isaiah chapter 53, which says this. Read it aloud with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you see it? What Jesus invites us to do is to partake of his body, which is inflicted and afflicted with the wrath of God. And in sharing Christ's afflicted body by receiving him, by trusting in him, you live vicariously. It is that Jesus takes your place, that that you now have been replaced by Jesus. And the effect of this is that everything that you have from God has been lived through Christ. And that means that every spiritual blessing that you have, you only have it because you are in Christ. And in the same way that Israel were in their houses, protected by the blood on the doorpost, so you are in Christ, protected not by the blood on the doorpost, but rather protected by the blood of the cross. Glorious, glorious imagery embedded in this event. And then this theme of being in Christ becomes the rallying cry of the theological mind and heart of the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says. Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Next, He is the source of your life in Christ, who God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And then, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if he's in the house, if he's inside of Christ, if he's received the bread of affliction, if he's received the gift of Christ bearing the wrath of God, then he or she is a new creature. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. It's no wonder that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Because friends, hear me, this vicarious identification with Jesus is the basis of everything of the Christian faith. Everything. 
but there wasn't just bread, there was, there were cups. And these cups, if we understand what was going on in their Passover celebration, were reflective of promises that were given in Exodus chapter 6. And there were four cups connected to four promises. Look at this text. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, here's the first cup, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Second cup, I will deliver you. Third cup, remember this one, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. And fourth cup, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Verse 27 tells us that Jesus took the third cup. That's where he was in the procession. He takes the third cup, which remember was the cup of redemption. The cup that says, I will redeem you. Jesus then takes this third cup, and in the same way that he changed the unleavened bread with the bread of affliction to now be take, eat, this is my body, so then Jesus takes this cup, and then he says this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see what he's doing? He's taking this redemptive element, this redemptive picture that was embedded in the Passover event, talking about how God redeemed his people. And now Jesus takes this cup and he transforms it and now makes it the pouring out of his own blood that Jesus was not only the bread of affliction, but now his blood becomes the very essence of what it means to be redeemed. And here, friends, is where the, the Passover and, and Lord's table converge in such a glorious manner in the same way that the blood of the Lamb was spilt and then poured out on the altar and then put on the doorpost of the house. So the Lamb of God's blood is spilt in order to make the way for a new covenant. The new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 when God said these glorious words, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will write my law on their hearts where the Spirit of God would now indwell them, and obedience wouldn't just be an external thing, it would be an internal thing, and it was the cup of redemption that made that possible. It was so that mankind could be favorable to God again. That's the word propitiation. Romans 3 and are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means to appease. To appease the wrath of God. You see, in... In the ancient Near East, if you were going to go on a trip, you would want to appease the God of the sea or the God of the land. And so you would give an offering, you would give an offering to make the God happy with you. And what this text is telling us is that God put forward a propitiation by His blood. God put forward the means for Him to be happy and satisfied with us. Joe mentioned a book that we're going to offer during Think, written by D.A. Carson, called Scandalous. Listen to what he says about propitiation. Here's what he writes. In pagan propitiation, a human being offers a propitiatory sacrifice to make a god propitious. In other words, I offer a sacrifice, 
of gratitude to try and please the God so that the God will be pleased with me. That's what that means. But in Christian propitiation, notice this. God the Father sets forth Jesus as the propitiation to make himself propitious. God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. God is the one who provides the sacrifice precisely as a way of turning aside his own wrath. God the Father is thus the propitiator and the propitiated, and God the Son is the propitiation. What does that mean? It means that everything you have is only because of the action, the attitude, and the activity of God. Everything you have, you have received. God is both the author, the instigator, and the applier of making himself happy with you. And without him, you would be eternally, he would be eternally displeased with you. So the question then, Paul says, where is boasting? Where is boasting? Are you kidding me? It's excluded because you got nothing. All you have is to receive the beautiful gift of Christ and therefore trust and faith in him is the essence of what conversion is all about. So Jesus becomes the bread of affliction. He absorbs the wrath of God. He becomes the third cup in pouring out for redemption. But there's one more cup. It's the fourth one that's talked about in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7 when it says, And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Now, interestingly, in the text, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. There are many, including myself, who think that at this point, Jesus refuses to drink the last cup. This is called the cup of consummation, where I will be your people. And what is he saying to them? He's saying that there will come a day, we're going to drink this together again, but it's not now. There is a coming kingdom, a coming consummation, a coming moment when we will all be together, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Doesn't it sound like the book of Revelation? Because it's there. And it's this beautiful call to not only receive Christ, but to receive by faith the hope of a coming kingdom. And it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to celebrate the Lord's table, because when we do so, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? He comes! Until He comes! And what Jesus does is He takes the the beautiful reality of the Passover and He transforms it into this new Lord's table in order so that you and I will fully understand that in the roots of this Passover is this Passover lamb who becomes the bread of affliction, who absorbs the wrath of God, who then takes this cup of redemption and pours himself out so that redemption could be possible and then says, I will drink this anew with you. There is coming a consummation. So the Lord's Supper connects us to Passover and the Exodus and it shows us the beautiful fulfillment of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. The Lord's table is a dynamic spiritual symbol that captures the beauty and the trauma of redemption. It's a dynamic symbol. You might look at these elements, it's just just bread mark, it's just, just juice. Yeah? Well, this is just a ring then. 
And I'll tell you, if I said to my wife, you know what, I'm kind of tired of this thing. I'm not going to wear it around anymore. There'd be problems at the Vrogop household, right? <laughs> Why? Because this ring says something. It's not, yeah, it's a symbol. But this ring has power in it. It communicates to everyone around that this person, this body, belongs to somebody else. That's why I checked to see my wife's got her ring on. I want that ring on. I want her walking around town going, no, no, taken. Back off, chump. Right? That's what I want people to know. And you come too close, they're going to have something going on here. That's what that ring means. It means no trespassing. That's what that means. So that's a dynamic symbol. It means that there is power. There's life. It's, it's not just an emblem. No, there is meaning and power and and commitment behind that ring. And in the same way, the Lord's table is a dynamic spiritual symbol that captures the beauty and the trauma of redemption. Think of what we have here. We have a memorial of the past. We, like Israel, have been redeemed out of slavery. We, we, we have a time for personal reflection. Is it I, Lord? We have a, a dynamic symbol that causes us to behold the beauty of God's redemption to, to realize that Jesus, Jesus became, listen to me, your bread of affliction. He hung on the cross absorbing your wrath. And when He says to you, take, eat, this is my body given for you, He's inviting you to receive to take by faith, not just in the elements, but in the essence of who He is, and to receive Him, and to receive His death, and to receive His atonement. And then when He says this cup is the new covenant, the new redemption, the new means by which God once and for all will offer a sacrifice His own Son. And then when you consider that it was God who both initiated this appeasing sacrifice, sent the appeasing sacrifice, slaughtered the appeasing sacrifice, and made His Son to be this pastor, Passover lamb, is it any wonder that the singular boast of God's people is not that we are Exodus people, but it is that we are cross people. And when you hear a text like 2 Corinthians 5.21, if you know the beauty of what it means to be a cross man or a cross woman, you are stunned by the content of this verse, that if it wasn't in the Scriptures, if you came up and just said this to me, I'd say this is almost heresy because of what it says about Jesus. But because it's in the Bible, it is life and hope. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin. That is an unbelievable statement. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is amazing redemption. This, this is the essence of how men and women are brought to the fold and the bosom of a holy God who could never come were it not for the propitiation that only comes in Christ. 
This, my friends, is the picture of the Passover and the Lord's table that we say, God, we are cross people. You became sin who knew no sin so that I could become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so, beautiful Christ, we receive your words and we see your your body as the afflicted one. We, We see the cup as the redemption that will now be poured out. And we want to receive these elements now as those who are grateful for all that you are for us. We acknowledge that there is nothing that we have that we haven't received. Oh God, forgive our pride. Forgive our pretension. Forgive the countless ways in which little sins become acts of micro-treason. And use now this Lord's table to give grace to those who treasure you and to those who do not know you, that this would be the day when they, by faith, say, Jesus, I see it now, and I know my sin, and I receive Christ. I see that the wrath of God was poured out on Him for me, and by faith, I say, God, take Christ's death and count it for me, and I want to be yours. And then in saying so, they become your child. God, oh, do that today. And we ask all of this in the name of our crucified and risen Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.